Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. It's our Christmas episode. Merry Christmas to all the non-chosen people out there. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hello, Stephanie. And Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho. <laughs> you, could do, you could do Santa Claus, Leo. I'm, I'm fat Jewish Santa. <laughs> fat Jewish angry Santa. <laughs> um, uh, with a, with a, an ample lap. An ample lap and uh, and a shotgun. And a shotgun. Uh, Later in the show, we'll be talking with Yael Stone, who is Jewish but plays Morello on Orange is the New Black. And she's also Australian. So if you're an Orange is the New Black fan and you love that joy Boston mashup accent that she does, wait till you hear what she actually sounds like. And our guest Gentile is Jennifer 8 Lee, former writer for The New York Times and author of The Fortune Cookie Chronicles. We will be talking Chinese food because it's our Christmas episode. I always called, when, when I used to see Jennifer's byline in The Times, I used to call her La Ocha for the eight. That says a lot about you. Is, <laughs> maybe La Ocho. Is there a feminine of Ocho? I think she's La Ocha. It's a, it's a whole different category of people who has like, you know, uh, word games on Times reporters, middle names. Middle initials. Yeah, yeah totally. So um, Washington last week, that was pretty awesome, huh? That was Probably, like, the best night of my life. I just want to say that there were three girls from the University of Maryland who came up to me afterwards. They'd come from Maryland. I, they said it was, like, ten stops on the on the metro. That's what they call it there, right? Yeah. Um, and they asked to take a picture with me, and I basically have told every single person I know about that since. What is it about live shows? Do you feel like, do you feel like we're better live? Or? Well, I just – I think it's really fun, like, when you said, like, welcome to – DC and everyone just started clapping and you're like I could do this (laughs) and then we asked them those questions you know about the show I don't know if this this has not made it it didn't make it to the it didn't make it to the the, the edit we had these trivia questions they got free tote bags yeah and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, who in their right mind would know the answer to what drug Stephanie's cat is on? And a 70 people are like, Prozac! And I'm like, <laughs> amazing. yes. So, so here's, here's a test for you guys. Uh, see if you're as sharp as our DC audience. One of the questions that I thought was sort of one of the hardest and sort of really a deep cut, an, or, an orthodox deep cut from an early episode. Uh, what did Simon Doonan consider doing before his wedding to Jonathan Adler to show his love for his nice Jewish husband? And the first... Two emails we get with that answer. Well, the correct answer. The correct answer. Uh, we'll send you a, a tablet tote. And and so they have to email unorthodox at tabletmag.com? Yeah, so email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and we'll send you a tote bag. The third email gets a visit from me. <laughs> You're going to get dressed up as Santa Claus. Oh, yeah. Okay, while we're playing this game, I like this game, Stephanie. Let's give another uh, trivia question to our listeners. Okay, listeners, if you want a free tablet... Tote bag. Answer this question. What did Orthodox sex therapist Bat Sheva Marcus say is a woman's best friend? First two answers to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Include your address. Give us the correct answer. You got yourself an unorthodox tote bag. Merry Christmas. Speaking of Christmas, uh, I think it's this perennial question of what Christmas means for Jews because it's not as if we're at liberty to ignore it. And as I said in Washington, you know, in, in my house, what Christmas means is we stay home all day in our pajamas. I mean, we're not, we, you know, I think as the kids get older, we'll do more going out to movies. Uh, there may be Chinese food involved, but right now it's just pajama day. And then they also always ask about the story of Christmas. And I, I explain to them, I give them, because I respect my Christian friends, I give them the actual 
religious story, which is at the birth of Jesus, who they believe is the son of God and also God. And at this point, their eyes just widen and they say, wait, 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 wait. There are people who believe that God became a person and then died, but then came back to life and then kind of merged into this triune Trinity Godhead. And I said, yeah, that's no, that's what they- Nothing like a kid to like really ruin a yeah. world religion. And my, yeah. Right. And my kids look at me and they're like, but that's insane. <laughs> like They actually said things like, but that's ridiculous, dad. And I said, well, you know, I mean, we believe some ridiculous yeah, things. Yeah, like, let me tell you about this burning bush. Right, exactly. And, you know, and then they say, but then what they say is, well, like, yeah, but we're also free not to believe that and we're still Jewish. And I say, aha, that's true. Your kids are like a little too precocious. Some of us have cats on Prozac. Some of us have precocious children. You know, my kids are also obsessed with Jesus, but they're just obsessed with like the cool, gory violence of it because they're my kids. <laughs> Lily looked. We took her to the Met, and we thought like we'd take her to see the beautiful things, but then she caught a glimpse of a Jesus. She's like, who's that? They're like, Jesus. Like, tell me. Tell me the story. So I told her the story. And she looks at, like, one of those, you know, really beautiful medieval, like, blood spurting from the hands and the legs and the throne of crowns, the crown of thrones and, you know, the Roman soldiers with the swords and everything. And she walks around the whole day in the museum and says, Jesus, they nailed him. <laughs> She's really into it. Another precocious child. Another precocious child. So I have an important child. question for you guys with kids. What do you guys have like the Santa Claus talk, which by which I mean not to tell other kids that Santa Claus isn't real? She goes to a Jewish day school. Oh, that's right. true. <laughs> yeah. Liel ensures that his children live we'll in, never a, live in a, a Gentile, Gentile free exactly environment. Right. On the Upper West Side. My kid gets like literally gets out gets out of a cab uh out you know on the way from school and starts like chanting, you know, David, Melech Israel. She's like completely oblivious. She's like that. waving an Israeli flag. I, I love it. Um, She's a settler on the Upper West Side. Do Christian kids really believe Santa Claus is real? I mean, until what age could they possibly believe that? Well, I think it's like the tooth fairy. Like you like, you have to Did you ever believe in the tooth fairy? I believed in the tooth fairy's power and generosity. You Mark believed is, in the dollar bill, but did you yeah, believe? Yeah, dollar, dollar bill. Mark is the religion writer with the <laughs> least faith I've ever met. It's like, <laughs> no, people like, really believe this stuff? Well, like and yet, yes, Mark, they do. I think I'm the only religion writer who actually goes to religious services often. You know? do, you, do you believe in God, though? I don't think I've ever asked you that. And the podcast is a perfect opportunity. Do you believe in God, Mark Oppenheimer? Uh, you know... I'm going to give you one of those, you know. I already got my answer, but go ahead. You got your answer. Um, not most days. Huh. Not most days. I have I have a faith that comes and goes. And uh, and that I, I'm comfortable being, I think it's okay to claim the title atheist in solidarity with the atheist, but I definitely don't feel in my bones atheistic. So, you know, it comes and goes. But, you know, I'll tell you something about that, right, which is that people on both sides of the aisle want to treat that as a wishy-washy answer, right? So the atheist – if I say I have faith that comes and goes, the atheist will say, oh, you're just, yeah. you're just a big pussy. Like, why just, don't you have no faith? Right. And just, you're a like, fair-weather atheist. Yeah. They just say just, – uh, just own up to the fact that, you know, you, you don't have faith, right? And then, of course, the religious people will say, well, no. I mean, you know, faith is, is faith. If it comes and goes, you're not – I mean – you're you're not really religious. And what I think is actually that there's this kind of bell curve, right? Like there's there's this 1% on the atheist end who are re- really never have any faith. And then there's this 1% on the religious end that really always have faith and that most people feel a little bit of, you know, wonderment that that 
turns into faith sometimes, and then it goes away other times. And I think this is a very painful reality for a lot of evangelical Christians in particular, for whom faith is actually, you know, for many of them, the, con- the condition of salvation. Like, it's not like being Jewish, where if, you, if you're atheist for 20 years, you're still Jewish all those 20 years, right? If you're an evangelical and you lose your faith, if you can't, if you don't have a testimony, uh, then you're not really a Christian. Uh, is there, by the way, a time period? So if you're evangelical and you lose your faith, it's like a five-day period after yeah, which, like, like a five-second rule. Is, is, is there a five-second rule for your soul? It's Literally, it's five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> well, to all of you who are wondering about deeper questions and God and truth and justice on this Christmas season, this episode's for you. You know who it's not for is Mendel Epstein. He's the rabbi who was arrested a couple years ago for hiring thugs to beat up men who refused to give their wives a Jewish divorce, known as a get. Um, He has been on trial in New Jersey, and he just received a 10-year sentence for having facilitated the beatdown of recalcitrant husbands. This is one of these questions that means nothing to people outside of the Orthodox Jewish world and means everything to people inside the Orthodox Jewish world. Just to give a quick recap, right? If you are an observant Jew and you want, and you're a woman and you want a divorce, your husband has to hand you a piece of paper giving you the religious divorce. If he doesn't do that, you can still go get your civil divorce, but you're not allowed to remarry within the Jewish faith because technically you're still married Jewishly. And you're so, called a chained woman. You're called an aguna, a chained or anchored woman, right? So what That's this like means the best is- Quentin Tarantino movie title that he right? ever made. A chained woman. And a chained like, woman. It's actually this story where like the yeah. prod father yeah. comes in. The prod father, yeah. So the prod father comes in with the, it, because there were actually um, uh, cattle prods involved in one of the beatdowns <laughs> he was alleged to have facilitated at some at some Brooklyn warehouse. I mean, this stuff oh was really, God. this stuff was really good fellas. Um, and the thing is, so what he was doing was he was uh, doing something very illegal, which was hiring thugs or hitmen. Um, uh, in fact, they, there was a, allegations that that one guy, one recalcitrant husband, was buried alive until he gave his wife uh, a, a divorce, till he signed the paper. Um, so that's bad. That's illegal. On the other hand, what he did was for some Orthodox Jewish women considered kind of heroic because in, unless the men voluntarily release their wives, unless they sign the paper, they can extort money from women. They can say things like, well, I'm not going to give you a divorce unless you give me full custody of the kids or a million dollars or whatever. So when he comes in with his caped crusaders and says, well, you're going to give her a divorce or we're going to kill you, um, that was seen as this kind of feminist Move. I, I don't know. What do you guys think about this? I mean, it really is a Quentin Tarantino movie, but I feel very, I feel conflicted because I think there's like, it's really, really, truly an awful situation in the Orthodox community where a man can keep a woman, like he can get remarried, but this woman is, is it do, that doesn't get any, you know, any of the benefits of, of what would come with divorce, you know, like alimony, things like that. Just even the, the closure of a divorce and that men can just sort of like go on and have another another life while these women are in this very like weird liminal state is disgusting. And so although I, this is so Byzantine, right? Because yes. uh, because technically polygamy is illegal for men too unless they get the permission of 100 rabbis. Right. So actually they they can get the heter mea rabbanum, which is the the like signatures of 100 rabbis saying that you can take a second wife, but right, the wife still has to stay married to your sorry ass. It's so weird. And so, like, it is awesome that there's this guy being like, I'm going to torture people who won't, like, I'm going to physically hurt these people who won't do it. I also think there's sort of like a weird extortionist part of it where he was charging, you know, like, I think these women had to pay him a lot of money to do this. So, well, it is a, uh, you know, intricate It's a dirty business. <laughs> it requires I mean, some doing. I just think it, like, this, you know, this story was in the Post this week. Like, this, this means maybe it will shed a little bit of, you know, a, a spotlight on this. And the fact that someone needs to torture you to, like, 
get you to do this thing. I mean, it just it just shows how awful the situation is. You know, as 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 they say in uh, in you know Bnei Brak and Jerusalem, Inshallah. Uh, may that change everything about this this uh, Byzantine ruling. But in the meantime, God bless the proud father. I am so into this guy. Could you imagine like having a rabbi who like does this? It's so badass. And, you know, like who are these thugs that are carrying this out? Like I don't think that they're like the thugs carrying this out are Orthodox guys who could not get into Yeshiva University yeah. for accounting degrees. They're 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 the real. These yeah. are guys who are who are Jewish but don't have a Yiddish cuff. Like these, don't... These, are, these are my guys, in other words. <laughs> these are your guys. These are dumb, violent Jews. <laughs> these are dumb, violent Jews who are not <laughs> studying a lot of Talmud. That's who no. goes into the beatdown trade. Um, speaking of your kind of Jews, uh, Liel, about 1,000 more Jews made Aliyah from France this year than last. There were 8,000 this year, according to a new report from the state of Israel. Um, some people in the Israeli Bureau of of Aliyah had thought there might be as many as 15,000. There were only 8,000. Um, there is this weird thing where when there's anti-Semitism in Europe, bureaucrats in Israel get really, really excited because they hope the anti-Semitism, I mean, is it too harsh to say they kind of are I know, excited? it's so weird. They get so excited. There's a Jewish state that could actually save the lives of thousands of Jews. I mean, can you imagine? So, Leo, you've actually written a book about Aliyah, about immigration to Israel. I have written um, a shitty book about Aliyah. Yeah. Why do you say, was it, why would you write a shitty book? You're a bright guy. Because I was 23. I didn't know how to write a good book yet. It takes time. <laughs> so what's wrong, what's, what do you argue in your book about Aliyah and, and what's wrong with it? How would you do it differently today. Well, I, I I don't argue that anything's wrong with it. It's it's kind of like a profile of of uh, and it's it's reserved only to Americans, but the American uh, Aliyah. But the thing that really kind of blows my mind about Aliyah, like this is a whole country only for immigrants. So you know the Polish Jews arrived, and then literally in historical terms, two days later, the Moroccan Jews arrived, and the Poles didn't even finish unpacking their suitcases, right? And they turn around and they look at the Moroccans who arrive with this like rich, amazing, beautiful culture, and they look at them and say, "You filthy animals! You're all hookers and criminals." And the Moroccans settle down, and they ha- they haven't even unpacked their suitcases, and the Russians arrive. And you would think that these people would learn their lessons, but they turn right around to the Russians, who literally came a day later, and they say. You filthy animals. You're all hookers and criminals. It's so great how, like, every kind of generation does the exact same thing. So who's coming next? Who's uh, the, who are the next well, hookers now, and criminals? Now, now the French. Right. Which, so that would, would be funny. Amazing. They're like, you, you cheese-eating surrender monkeys. You come into our country well, no, with no tradition. Well, here's the amazing thing about the French. The French arrive as the French always do with this with this really charming sense of obliviousness. For the French, Israel uh, kind of basically is a huge club med. Right, they've arrived from European Paris to like this great big Mediterranean resort, and they're all like, you know, aga do do do. They're sort of dancing on the beach and super happy, uh, and I love it. I love walking down, you know, Ben Yehuda Street and being like, uh, pardonnez-moi, monsieur, la piscine. It's like it's so great. Oh, 
Hello, unorthodox friends in the South. We have a live taping coming up January 25th at American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina. The nice thing about this taping is it's actually for all Southerners. So we invite Texans, Mississippians, Alabamans, Tennesseans. You're all invited to come see us at American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina. We have a few more live shows in the works. Uh, We're getting a lot of requests. If you're interested in booking us for a live show, write to our director of audience development, Alyssa Goldstein. She is at egoldstein at tabletmag.com. And if you can't make it to American Hebrew Academy, you can get our print magazine uh, to get our new print edition of Tablet featuring all sorts of stuff that you can't get online, including Anne Frank manga, where you see how the Japanese view Anne Frank, and an extraordinary article about the birth of Jewish cool in Miami. You can text the word tablet to 66866. Again, text tablet to 66866 and subscribe. Our Jewish guest this week is actress Yael Stone. She's from Sydney, Australia. She has that unplaceable accent on the TV show Orange is the New Black, on which she plays the mildly sociopathic Morello, whom we all love. Uh, she, she, uh, Her parents were Europeans. They moved to Australia because they heard the weather was better than in Canada and England and the United States, where everyone else went. And um, she moved to the United States. Yael, when did you move here? Uh, I moved in 2012. Wow, your English is so good. How quickly did you learn English? <laughs> you know, it's an incredible skill. I realized if I was going to be part of this industry, I'd just have to brush up on the old English. Yeah. See, immigrants come in and take all our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> immigrants come in and take our jobs playing prison sociopaths. Um, she has a new show on the sci-fi network called Childhood's End, and we're really excited to have her. And, Yael, if we use words in English that are hard for you, just just tell us. to We'll, we'll translate to Australian for you. Absolutely. And I have a computer in front of me. So if there's things with multiple syllables, I'll just type them in and, and come up with a definition. Oh, that'll be amazing. God, technology is so great. And the fact that you've learned how to use it is also really great for an Australian. Uh, totally. So b- before we get to anything else, um, tell us about the new show. What is Childhood's End? Uh, did you do it just for the paycheck or do you actually believe in the product? Because I got to tell you that the posters for that show look so, so cool scary. and so scary. Yeah. The trailer is terrifying. It's a little scary. Um, well, I don't know. Are you familiar with Arthur C. Clarke? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, we, so we have a token sci-fi dweeb, and that's Liel. So he's probably read all of Arthur C. Clarke in five languages. I've, I've done my bit. That's great. Well, Liel, you probably know a hell of a lot more than I do. But I was familiar in a kind of, you know, periphery way about Arthur C. Clarke. He famously predicted the way in which we would interact with technology, that we would all have personal computing devices, that there would be some kind of bizarre web that would link us all and be a place where we could reference information. He basically predicted the internet and the way that we would relate to our phones and our kind of obsession with our phones. So he was a pretty incredible guy, a pretty incredible thinker, and he used fiction to kind of explore these ideas. So Childhood's End is one of his more famous novels. Um, and it explores some large questions that I guess what makes it so fascinating is that it is really dark. It's not these kind of obvious, you know, man versus aliens, man comes out on top because man understands love. You know, it's not that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's a lot more 
basically it's it's playing more in the in the gray areas in between um and you know i think the adaptation has a lot of successes you know and some things that aren't entirely successful but i i was i am really proud to be part of this this effort by sci-fi to kind of reach more into the interesting p- parts of sci-fi, the fact that it allows for greater questions to be asked, to kind of ask big moral absolute questions, you know, and, and all the questions in between the absolutes. So, yeah, I, I am really proud to, to be a part of it. And uh, the character is very different from Morello. Um, she's very <laughs> somber and very serious, and she's, she's actually a religious fanatic in some ways. You could kind of look at it like that. And um, it's, it's, a different, it's a different take on, the, on the, the obsessively psychopathic character for me. You know, speaking speaking of obsessives, uh, Orange is the New Black has a really big following, but science fiction shows have a whole different order of magnitude of obsessive fans. Are you are you really prepared to be a, a sci fi heron? Are you are you prepared for comic cons and for you know people who've never left their parents' basement <laughs> going to be like, oh, I loved you on that show, but why didn't your character you know use a teleporter to transport her? Like, are you ready for this? And do you want to ask her that question? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You asking? I feel I'm already one. nerd stalking you, and I haven't even seen the show. Um, we, we did one Comic Con already with uh, with Childhood's End, and there was already a kind of whole host of very accusatory people who wanted to make sure that their book was being taken care of in the correct way. Oh, right, you, um, you got to tell us about this. I was very impressed, actually. Um, I, you know, what a wonderful audience to kind of interact with people who really know their material. Sure, they're a little terrifying because they really know <laughs> their material. But um, I, I think that's wonderful. I, I appreciate the audience. I think uh, I'm not quite in that world, but I'm excited to learn more about it, perhaps from a safe distance, you know, maybe behind some plexiglass. <laughs> So I have to say, I saw you at the Bell House in Brooklyn a few years ago at an event where you um, read a letter. And I was, I think like everyone, I'm, I think I knew you were Australian, but sort of hearing you speak in your regular, in your actual voice. In her native language? Your, no, I, no, everyone. Okay, I'm not going to be part of that joke. But you're, you're, I know everyone asked you about your accent as Morello, but it was very striking to see you um, without, you know, the makeup and the hair. And just, I mean, is it, do you get recognized a lot? Um, I do get recognized when I kind of put myself together a little bit. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I have a, I have a low level of vanity, really, um, that I have to engage a little bit more when I'm like being, you know, a professional actor. <laughs> so most of the time I don't get recognized because I'm kind of getting around in, in pretty schlubby clothes on the train. Um, but when you but, do you get, know, when you, yeah, when you do get recognized, is it kind of awesome or are you kind of sick of it? Like how, how? What's the awesomeness to please leave me alone? Yeah, where are you in the range? ratio? Uh, it, here is a good way to explain it. I am pretty uncomfortable with it, but but not because people are unkind or or not lovely and or rude. It's mainly because I'm more comfortable being the underdog. So with, with, when people immediately approach me and kind of put me above them in a status sort of situation, I feel really uncomfortable. And after a few years, I've sort of worked that out. I'm like, okay, it's just because I don't really like them assuming that I'm some big thing. That That's what makes me uncomfortable. I sort of really like meeting people and, and chatting with people, but mainly if we're just on the same level. So I think that's what makes me uncomfortable. It's this weird assumed status. That's, that's what's awkward. So, I mean... 
Orange is the New Black is not the only thing you've done, though that may be what you're best known for at this point. But you were in a great play um, that ran at a limited run at BAM that many of our readers, our listeners, sorry, must might have seen. It was called Diary of a Madman. And you actually had to shave your head for the role. I did. I did shave my head for the role. It was exciting. I, I, it was my first time working in New York, and I had never like had a real winter before and I shaved my head I was freezing cold I was terrified I was performing to these enormous audiences and I was just assuming every single person hated my guts um and then I got pneumonia because it was too cold and I didn't have a proper jacket I mean it was a real you know sad you know little Jew in New York story I read somewhere on on the internet speaking of little Jews that uh, as your head was shaved you travel to Poland to celebrate your sister's birthday, visiting some of our finest concentration and death camps. Is that correct? What was it like to be a shaved-headed Jewess at a death camp? And by the way, why would your sister celebrate her birthday in Poland? (laughs) I I just, first off, I've just got to say, wow, you've really done your research. And I'm very impressed by that. Um, All of that is true. I, it was extraordinary. And I should actually answer this properly because this is a large question. The question presupposes that I do actually see myself 100% as a Jew. And of course, I have huge questions about that. You know, for me, it's always been a huge question. So do Um, we. That's why we started the show. (laughs) I know. I know. I I felt bad because I was like, here I am, the token Jew, but I don't even know. I've all, it's been a, I mean, of course I am. And I'm very proud of the blood and the stories inside me. And I'm very proud of where I come from. But I I have strange feelings about religion. and, And oddly enough, you know, these characters, Lorna is religious. Also, this character in Childhood Ben, Peretta, is, you know, very, a very serious <laughs> religious person who, who bases huge decisions based on her knowledge of the Bible. I mean, and here I am, someone who's just, like, constantly been questioning my relationship with God, and if I feel this God, and who is this God, I don't, I don't know. So th- that's the beginning of the answer. And the second part is I did shave my head and go to Poland, and it was really freaking strange. <laughs> and uh, my dad said to my sister and I before we left, you know, okay, you, you're two little Jews going to Poland, and I, I want you to be careful because, you know, there's a lot of anti-Semites there, blah, 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 blah. And we were like, oh, Dad, you know, you're so paranoid. And it was actually a little confronting. I got to say, it was a confronting because it felt like there weren't a lot of Jews in Poland. Surprise, surprise! <laughs> and there were there was a lot of um, well, there was some noticeable graffiti that I'd never seen in other parts of the world, um, and I did find it really confronting. And we did go to to some camps, and I I'll always wonder if that was the right decision because it. It was one of the most deeply and profoundly um, disquieting, kind of really unsettling things I've ever done in my life. Um, and I, I was standing there with my sister, and we were looking at photographs of you know families, and I could see the reflections of our faces in the glass of the photographs, and we just looked like those women. And, and it was. And one of you strange. had a shaved head, <laughs> which really contributed to the authenticity. Yael. Um... 
first of all, uh, we feel that God placed you on this show this week as the token Jew to help shore up your Jewish identity. I mean, now it's inescapable, <laughs> right? So it's like, on the you, radio. You can yeah. put all the questions to rest. There's a fine place in our tradition for the questioning atheist Jewess from Australia who plays Italian Catholics on Netflix. <laughs> and and you were, you know, for such a time as this, you were put here. Um, could you tell us in the voice of Morello how we can watch Childhood's End? Um, so what you're going to do is you're going to turn on the television, you're going to look for the <laughs> sci-fi network or channel or however it comes to you, and I believe it's uh, December 17th, it's going to go for three nights, uh, it's two hours each night, e- each night is a different kind of themed night, uh, you'll see me mostly in the, the end of the, the first night and the second night mostly, that's where all my kind of drama is, so I would really concentrate on that. Yeah, on yo, behalf you, of all the nerds in the world, I thank you for thank all you. of that. You are a great sport. Thank you very much, guys. Have a great right, day. Take care. Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby. So hurry down the chimney tonight. And now our world-famous feature Gentile of the Week, special Christmas edition. Our Gentile this week is Jennifer Eightley. That's right. Her middle initial is a number. How you like her now? She's almost 40. She was born without a middle name. She got one when she was at Hunter High School in New York City. She went to Harvard, became a newspaper reporter for the New York Times, and she wrote a book called The Fortune Cookie Chronicles, which tells the story of how all-American Chinese food has become. In 2005, she wrote a famous article for the New York Times about what happens when two straight men hang out in a non-flirtatious way, and she claims to have coined the term mandate, which is not a term that any men who actually go on a mandate use, but it's, it's an, an important one in our culture, I think. She is fluent in Mandarin, and we will be conducting this whole interview in Mandarin and then translating it for you afterwards. Jenny? Hi. Hi. Thank, thank you for being with us. Oh, yes. Hey, so Jenny, may we call you Jenny? <laughs> yes. Is it true that you coined the term mandate? It depends on your term coined. I popularized it and wrote the definitive article on it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, do you feel like if you got run over by a truck tomorrow, that would that be part of your legacy? Yeah. I would say like the three things are like fortune cookies are Japanese, mandate, and the dumpling emoji. Wait. <laughs> what a heritage. I'm, I'm not even kidding. That's amazing. <laughs> you should be proud. Like that's a good way to go. Yeah, I mean, what what do any of us got? We've got like a podcast with 20 episodes so far, and you've got the dumpling emoji. <laughs> I mean, I, I saw that it's, it's a, it's a um, Kickstarter now. I, when I saw that, I thought, this is like, I've always been, wanted to get a bagel emoji. Like, why is there no bagel emoji? And it sort of seems can, like a very... You can petition. I, I, think, I think you guys should lobby for a bagel emoji. Well, I mean, we need an inter-ethnic coalition. I mean, there, there has to be some solidarity no, no, here. No, no, I can teach you how to do a proposal. So you don't want to join us? Does that make sense? You don't want us to, yeah, like, I mean, glom I'm... on to what you're doing? No, no, you don't want to glom on to ours, trust me. So, <laughs> Jenny, this, I mean, this this sort of solidarity, inter-ethnic coalition building that we're doing right here in this Christmas season, which is, like, really a beautiful thing and, and, and is part of our Peace on Earth campaign, Peace on Earth in 2016, <laughs> um, uh-huh. this does sort of lead to the question, not the ultimate question, which is about Jews and Chinese food, and we'll get to that, mm-hmm. right? Yes. But the penultimate question, which is, as a woman of 
um, an elite model minority extraction growing up in New York City, where the, the elite model minorities used to be our people, the Jews. How did you growing up as a New York City uh, China woman? Can we say China woman? Um, sure. h- how did you feel about the Jews? Like, did, did they? Oh, did... I love the Jews. Well, I grew up on the Upper West Side. <laughs> so, I mean, did I you feel, were you a little bit Jewish? Of course. I actually went to, um, you know, what I did for last Christmas. You know, we have a documentary called The Search for General So, um, and it it premiered January 2nd. But for Christmas, what we did was did a preview showing at the um, JCC in the Upper West Side. And it was like, you know, on Christmas Day and like, you know, followed by Chinese food. And it was like the ultimate like Jewish Chinese experience. And 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 like I was like, you know, when I was you know doing the Q&A, I was like, these are my people. My people are not here in San Francisco. <laughs> my people are in the Upper West Side. The techie, I don't know who was here in San Francisco, but like, you know, there's not a sense of, there's like, it's just very familiar. I was actually shocked to discover that Jews were like 1% of the American population or whatever they were. I was like, no way. I was like, most people I know are like <laughs> white people are Jewish. So to the to the most important question, and perhaps the fourth thing for which you'd be remembered if run over by a truck, uh, you have yeah. you have written and spoken on the question of Chinese food and Christmas Day and Jews. Yeah. Jenny, why is chow mein the chosen food of the chosen people? <laughs> um, so, a couple key things: Jews and Chinese are the two largest non-Christian immigrant groups to America, which is very notable, right? So. You know, Mexicans and Italians are Christian, even, and they control a lot of restaurants as well. Um, and what you basically find is that Chinese restaurants are open when Jews wanted to eat. And that includes Sundays, and that includes Christmas. And there was a time when, you know, restaurants were closed on Sunday. And so, um, you know, when the Jews wanted to go out for family events, Sunday was often Chinese food night. That's one. Two, um, Chinese food doesn't use dairy, unlike the two main other ethnic cuisines in America throughout most of the 20th century, which are Italian and Mexican. So uh, it was a lot easier to keep kosher because you have a separation of meat and milk. Um, Another thing is that pork didn't look like pork in Chinese food. Like, even though it was clearly pig in our, in like Chinese people's minds, it didn't look like bacon. It didn't look like ham. It didn't look like sausage. So like the little pork bits inside an egg roll didn't look like pork either. It was kind of like don't ask, don't tell with regard to uh, <laughs> Chinese food. And so you had this interesting concept, which is like it was safe trafe, um, as some people said. And it's still very, very strange. I, I have I have Jewish friends my age, so very Americanized, who will not eat pork except in a Chinese restaurant. And they can't explain it. <laughs> they don't know why that is. And like, and they're not even very religious. They just don't do it. It's sort of just like weird kind of vestigial, like kosher, sort of, like kosher in spirit, except, you know, like Chinese food gave you kind of this like safe Well, there's this whole concept of kosher style, right? Because, of course, if you were really observant, you wouldn't have gone into these restaurants anyway because they, you know, they didn't have kosher kitchens. So even even if you weren't eating pork, you wouldn't eat out even anything at a non-kosher certified restaurant. So it was always about this kind of kosher style, kosher spirit. I feel like everyone just like agreed to look the other way on the pork thing at Chinese restaurants. I think they were like, we have a really good thing going. This place is open. Like, let's just. Let's not ask too many questions. Yeah, like. Just, this is delicious. (laughs) Right, right. I have a question. When you started writing your book, Fortune Cookie Chronicles, did you sort of did you expect that the the Jews and Chinese like did you expect this angle to be something that you like oh, are yeah. still talking about? Yes, 
it is like a, an evergreen perennial topic. I think Chinese food in general is an evergreen perennial topic. Like, for example, um, the, the New York Times just did an article about like uh, the number one day for weddings in the year in Chinatown is Thanksgiving, right? Because 364 days a year, Americans eat Chinese food and one day of the year they don't. So that's when all the Chinese restaurant workers get married. And that was an article we did like, in the, like, like 10 years ago. <laughs> like this is like, or 13 years ago, right? It's like we see the same things over, you know, like the takeout box and like fortune cookies. Now at least I like added more to the conversation on fortune cookies and I added more to the conversation on takeout boxes. But the surge of interest in Chinese food in America from outlets not even in America is, like, stunning. Like, the Koreans wanted to come and interview me on American Chinese food. And then the British, kind of, I just did an interview with the BBC. Like, there is, like, this fascination with Chinese food in America. And I think part of it is that in American movies, people are always eating Chinese food out of takeout boxes, which, like, in reality, people never eat out like directly out of the takeout box, right? Because like you, you need I, to make I mean, sure, like, some right. of us do. <laughs> it's sort of like right. the the Ben and Jerry's pint, right? Like in 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 Nancy Meyer movies, when there's a breakup, people right. eat out of these boxes. But you know why they do? This is interesting. I learned it's because you don't have to reset the shot with new props each time. Like if you had pizza, you would have to put new pizza. Oh, because you can't see what's in it. <laughs> you can't see what's in it. That's brilliant. All right, final question for you, Jenny. What are you doing for Christmas? I don't know. I guess I was going to hang out with a Jewish friend. All right, like, brilliant. You are, you are a true Jew at heart. And from the people who gave you the topic that you will dine out on forever, all we have to say is you're welcome. <laughs> Jennifer Ailey, how can our average Jew see The Search for General So? It is now on Netflix, chugging along. Everyone, go watch The Search for General So on Netflix. Merry Christmas. Thanks to Jennifer Ailey for joining us. This week, instead of Mazel Tovs, I think we're going to give Christmas wishes to all the Gentiles out there because, you know, our listenership is not just Jews. Liel, do you have a, a Christmas wish for the, the Christians in our listening audience? I have a Christmas wish for a very particular subsection of Christians um, to the people of Bethlehem and to the rest of the Palestinians who are living under the oppression of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, may this year be a year of peace, good decisions, and real liberty. Oh, Baruch Hashem. That was lovely. Stephanie, do you have do you have one? I wanted to wish a Merry Christmas to my besties and favorite Gentiles um, who have welcomed me into their Christmas Christmas traditions over the years. Uh, Catherine O'Neill and Irene Pappas. Um, I also have a larger Christmas wish. I, I want just like I like that whole peace on earth thing. Like I really I would like to like double down on it from the Jewish side. Yeah, as well. Totally. Totally. As for me. I would like to wish us the upside of a Donald Trump presidency, as that seems to draw near. And I'm, I'm not kidding here. Donald Trump is a thrice-married, lapsed Presbyterian. This is a man with basically no faith at all. And if he comes to office, one imagines that he'll have trouble not cracking a smile at the national prayer breakfast, right? This is an unpious guy. God bless him. And I think that the conflation of conservative politics with Christianity— has been bad for both of them. I think it's bad for conservative politics. And I think it's bad for honest, sincere 
uh, Christianity. I think having a president who is some sort of mashup of conservatism and whatever he is and basically doesn't give a damn about religion will actually be really, really cathartic and clarifying for both. So if we get a Donald Trump, I wish us a totally unpious, irreverent, dickish, non-Christian presidency from him. Also, two of uh, three... Two out of three of Donald Trump's wives uh, have been immigrants, proving once again that we really need immigrants to do the jobs that Americans just wouldn't do. And his daughter, of course, is a convert to Orthodox Judaism. So in some ways, like this— The this, ultimate irony. This would be a pretty dope White House, and I'm, I'm actually—I'm I'm reconciling myself to it. Finally, we have a Hanukkah wish, a belated Hanukkah wish, a Christmas wish, a peace on earth wish for our friend Laura Querrell. Laura is well known to public radio fans. She's the producer of Interfaith Voices Radio, for which she's won a number of awards. She wanted to come to our Washington taping, but she couldn't because she was having some complications with her pregnancy. And when last we talked, it looked as if she was going to be delivering her little Querrell at 27 weeks. So I asked her if we could offer a, a mishaberach, a prayer for wellness and healing to her and to her uh, newborn premature baby. And I said we'd get all of our many thousands of listeners to do the same. So to Laura Querrell and to her husband and to their child, health and flourishing in the year to come. We truly love your mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, Merry Christmas wishes, or questions for our panel of Jewish experts, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. That's also the address that will get you our newsletter. If you want our weekly newsletter, write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and just ask for it. You can also send us a voice memo to play on the air if you like. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Magazine. Its producer is Sarah Ivry, and our editor is Julie Subrin. Rabbinic supervision this week from Rabbi Yair Dar. Kosher slaughtering is by my friend Cindy Huang, who left a very young baby at home to come see us in Washington. I, I mean, with, with a sitter, of course. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. Shalom, friends.